Good morning once again, Orangewood. If you have a Bible, we will be in Galatians chapter 6 this morning. You can follow along as I read um, from the screens. Friends, these words are inspired, sufficient, and true, and they are given to us in love this morning. From Galatians 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Uh, before you're seated, would you pray with me? Well, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are here. You are in the midst of your people, and we have gathered to hear from you. And so, Lord, would you teach us? Would you equip us? Would you encourage us by the grace and power of Jesus and his gospel? And we pray this in his name. And everyone said, amen. You may be seated. Uh, as you're taking your seat, uh, I have three quick announcements this morning. Uh, it was supposed to be two, but three, because I forgot what I was supposed to say at membership. If, uh, if you have been coming and have been interested in joining our church, we have another class for uh, Discovering Orangewood and membership that will be in April. Uh, and so you can find out more information online, orangewood.org slash events. Uh, but to take note of that. Second announcement, as Linda mentioned during uh, her time with us, giving us that Pastor Scott Sauls will be with us next weekend um, for our on-series Cancel Culture. Um, I really encourage you to attend, uh, invite a friend, invite family to join you because he's going to be giving us tools for how do we live out this gospel in a cancel culture. So make sure you're here next Saturday night and the following Sunday morning where he will preach right here. Uh, and then the last highlight I want to give you is for our spring giving. Um, if you're a guest with us, our church sets aside time each year uh, in the spring and at Thanksgiving to give to various needs locally and around the world. It's 100% in, 100% out to these various needs. And our spring focus has been for the needs in Ukraine and uh, our own deacons fund to help support the needs here locally. Um, and I'm excited to share to you that over the past few weeks that we've been collecting our spring giving, um, we have collected now, you have raised $63,000 to go completely to this spring giving campaign. So that's an amazing amount. Um, yeah. Uh, so I love the ways God's working in you and through you. Way to go, church. Um, we'll begin the process now of distributing those funds to our partner uh, over in Ukraine and our work here locally. But that life transformation is through you. And so way to go. Thank you so much for your faithfulness and partnership in the work that we get to do together. Uh, if you are a guest with us, I'm really glad you are here. 
Uh, we've been in a sermon series going through the book of Galatians, but we find ourselves in a sermon series called All Caps, uh, All Caps, which is the final section of this book to the Galatians. Paul is emphatically trying to get our attention. He's writing in all caps, if you will, how the gospel practically is working its way out in your life. Um, and part of that this morning is what we're going to look at. I want to share a story uh, about the, how this reality was shaped in the life of the philosopher Martin Buber. Martin Buber, uh, his early adulthood, he was um, having a moment of meditation. He, he, he was Jewish. He was in a moment of meditation, and there was a visitor who had come to his door and was knocking on the door and wanted to spend time with him. And, and uh, Martin Buber allowed him into his house. But while he was with this man, um, he, he was, he was uh, distracted. He was, he was upset because he had been interrupted from his silent meditation. So he wasn't fully present with, with curiosity to what this man's needs were and, 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 and struggled to, to really engage with them. He spent time with them, but then sent him on his way. Uh, later, Martin Buber is talking to one of his friends who also knew this visitor. And this friend went on to share with Martin Buber that uh, the visitor that he had had into his house had committed suicide, had taken his life. And that profound moment for Martin Buber radically shaped how he began to think about relationships, how he thought about being present to others and the needs of others. Um, he went on to write what's a famous book now called I and Thou. This, this idea that, that in this other person um, it, it, it is the image of God. And he says that we go through life so focused on our agendas, our dreams, our goals, that we miss the other in our lives, the thou in our lives. And Buber says what we can tend to do is live our lives focused on ourselves, and the other person is no longer a thou, they are an it. It's an I-it world. Uh, these people are just pawns in our story. And what Buber is connecting to is the problem for humanity since the fall. Uh, the, first, the first encounter we have of relationships post-fall is the story of Cain and Abel. Cain gets jealous. He does not have faith in God. His agenda is being compromised. He's being interrupted. Uh, his hopes are being lost. Cain takes matters into his own hands. And he kills Abel. And God asked Cain, where, where is Abel? God asked Cain, where is Abel? And by the way, uh, just to make sure we're all clear, God sees all, knows all, knows exactly what has happened to Abel. But God knows, God knows. He knows what Cain has done, but he wants Cain's response to speak into this. And Cain responds with this famous line, am I my brother's keeper? Am I my, am I my brother's keeper? And so for Cain, it was this rhetorical question. Of course I'm not. But God saw a different way of life in mind for you and for me. Cain thinks he's just there to look out for himself. God, on the other hand, believes every person carries his image and therefore has eternal value. How do we care well for others? How, how, how do we see them, tru truly see them, engage in their life with curiosity? Two questions from our passage this morning. First, what does it look like to care for one another? And second, how do we become the kind of people who care well? Let's look at that first question. What does it look like to care for one another? 
Uh, Paul uses a word here in our passage. It is the word restore. Uh, Look at verse one. He says this, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Paul uses this word restore in the Greek is this word uh, katartizo, katartizo. It was, our, it was the word used in, in the ancient world to reset a bone, a bone that was out of place. It was, you, you, would, you would catartizo, you would, you would put it back in its place. Uh, imagine after service today, we clear the floor, we push back the bleachers, uh, we, we get the, the nets down and we tell you I have a pickup game of basketball uh, right here. Um, and as much as, as a 40-year-old can, I bring all the skills that I have Uh, to that game. I want you to imagine this is a story, right? Okay. Um, uh, I just, I decide to display all that I can bring. And, um, just in this game, I'm, I'm playing lights out in case you're wondering. Um, and, uh, and because it's a story I'm, I'm dunking actually. Um, uh, and on one of my dunks, um, because there were many, uh, just, you remember, this is a story, but there were many, uh, on one of them, I come down and it's, it's not good. It's, it's not good. I, I fall awkwardly and I, I break a bone in my leg and the bones beginning to come through a little bit. I'm laying there. And we, fortunately in this story, uh, we actually had a doctor that's playing with us and all eyes turned to him. What, what should we do? And the doctor uh, looks and he's on my team, right? He's been seeing the, the game I've been bringing. Um, the dunks I've been having. He says, Tyler, you're, you're playing so well. I, I, I think you can run this off, but just, just get up, do a few laps. I think you can bounce right back. You're fine. Now there is no way if that doctor actually cares would he say that. Why? Because that's not catartizo. That's not restoration. It, it, it's not dealing with the real issues. Oh my goodness. It will be so painful to reset that bone. So painful, but it is the only way for healing to take place. Paul is saying, this is how you care well for others. It's, it, our heart should be for restoration. What does that look like? Well, Paul says here first, he says, notice the group, notice the group. Uh, he begins the section. He starts with the word brothers. It's the word Adelphoi, which I think properly is better translated brothers and sisters. He's speaking to the whole local church. Paul's writing. He's saying this is what restoration looks like in the context of the church, that there was a special relationship Paul had in mind for the church and how they lived out this restoration before the world. We see we can we can kind of have this idea that the issues are out there, out there. But, but, but Paul's saying, no, 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 no. The, the issues out there, that, that's not the main problem. The issues are in, in here that we need to reset the spiritual bones in here. Uh, that, that this is what it means to bear the burdens. It's what it means to be called the church. Uh, we, we can sometimes get so focused on what's going on out there, but they don't know Jesus out there. They don't, they don't have the indwelling of the spirit. Paul, Paul, Paul's saying, we need to focus in here. Uh, I love the way the theologian Stanley Hauerwas put it. He says this, the first job of the church is not to make the world more just, but to make the world the world. And, and, and Hauerwas, what he meant by it is it, it, he's, not, he's not saying uh, we, don't, we don't desire to make the world a better place. Of course we do. But, but what he's saying is we shouldn't be surprised by the world. 
We shouldn't be surprised by people who are not part of the church. This is, they're just living as they normally would if they don't know Jesus. The world's living exactly how they would without the Spirit of God. But what about the church? Uh, what about brothers and sisters? How are we restoring one another and resetting spiritual misalignment? The church, Jesus said, is a city on a hill. City on a hill. We are showing the world an alternative community that loves one another and walks with one another, even through pain, bearing with one another through restoration. Paul asks, do you have the right group in mind? Because it's so easy to think the problem is out there. Those people, how do we care well? How are we resetting the spiritual bones of our brothers and sisters? The church is called to be an alternative community following Jesus, consumed with the love of Jesus, offering a different way to live in our broken world. So notice the group, the restoration happens through the church. But secondly, Paul says, notice the process. Notice the process. Look, look at verse one again. He says this, you who are spiritual should restore him. The process is very important. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of Chuck Yeager. He is a famed test pilot, jet test pilot. And uh, he was one time flying uh, his F-86 Sabre over a lake in the Sierras right by um, his friend's house. He wanted to fly his jet as close as he could by his friend's house to buzz the house. Those are things you can do, apparently, when you're a, a famed uh, jet pilot, is you can buzz the house of your friends. So he, he flies super close to his friend's house, and he goes to do a, a, a barrel roll. And when he does that, the, his, his wing flaps actually close in on him and force him to only go upside down. And he, Yeager was saying he's flying 150 feet up off the ground, but he's upside down, and he can't figure out how to turn over. It's a very scary experience. In fact, uh, he was saying anyone not skilled would have died, but he learned in that moment, okay, I'm going to press the G's up. We're going to push through. And then hopefully it fixes itself, which it did. He got up a little higher, 15,000 feet, and he did the same process again to figure it out. And sure enough, it happened again. It, it locked in upside down and he couldn't figure it out. Well, Jaeger finally got to the ground. He informed his supervisor and they went to work to figure out what is going on. What happened? Uh, they had known that there were three or four pilots who had died recently flying this same jet, and they didn't know if there was a connection. And so they went to work to look into all this, and eventually they found the fatal flaw was in these wing flaps that were locking up. They found a bolt on the wing flaps had been installed upside down. And they started to do work to figure out where is this coming from? How did this happen? And eventually the culprit was found in a North American plant. He was an older man on the assembly line who had ignored instructions of how the wing flap should be inserted and how the bolts should be put into place. Because by golly, he said the bolts were supposed to be placed up rather than down. That's what he had determined. Jaeger went on to say it is a sad commentary that no one ever told this man how many pilots he had killed. The process is important. And sadly, many people have been hurt in the church because the process has been avoided. Um, Paul tells us here, restore them, restore them. It, it, It doesn't say ignore them. It doesn't say avoid them. It doesn't say talk about them with others. It says 
restore them. And I'm thankful that the Bible gives us such a clear process for restoration. You can see this actually in Matthew 18. This is what Jesus says. He says this, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault because you and him between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Uh, Paul is giving us the same process as Jesus. We go to restore them. And if they won't listen to us, then the next step is we take two or three witnesses. Uh, Finally, if they will not listen through all that brokenness, we will tell the church. And what Jesus meant by tell the church is we will tell the elders. Um, The the reading of this is not, Tyler, uh, I would like the microphone on Sunday. I have a few things I would want to share and tell the church about this person. That's not not the process. Just want to make sure we're clear. It doesn't work that way. We found through the years, though, we found through the years that this process is hard to follow. It's a hard to follow. And I get it. Resetting a spiritual bone is hard. It can be nerve wracking. It can be painful. Uh, And let's face it. Gossip is so much easier than restoration. But the church is called to be an alternative community consumed with the love of Jesus offering a different way to live in this broken world. That's our process. We go to them directly in love. Then if we have to, we go to them in love with others. And then if we have to, we go to the elders in love for them and for restoration. So notice the group, notice the process. Paul then says, notice the attitude. Notice the attitude. Look at the end of verse one. He writes this, restore him in a spirit of gentleness, in a spirit of gentleness. Uh, I don't expect many of you have heard of Mound City, Illinois. Anyone heard of Mound City, Illinois? Of very few. I got one hand. And that's what I expected because Mound City, Illinois uh, is a very small town. Population, 588 people. Uh, It sits right along Interstate 57 at the southern border of Illinois and Missouri or Missouri, however you say it. And in the very beginning of January 2011, Rachel and I had packed up our moving truck and we are journeying from Houston, Texas. We're in our 2004 Taurus, a beautiful piece of metal. And we took that car uh, from Houston, Texas up to Detroit, Michigan, where we were going to serve at the church up there for 10 years. But on our way, we, we had stopped and stayed the night in Charleston, Missouri. And just before we we begun our next morning drive and we're heading north on Interstate 57 and we're hitting Mound City and we're beginning to pass through a heavy work zone area. Lots of big giant flags everywhere and and the speed limit is 45 and we we slow down and then we come through all the flags and they're they're gone. And so we we pick back up again and and I can see off in the distance there are more red flags that, you know, we've been driving for a few miles, but there are more red flags. And and so we see a, a sign that says speed limit 45 miles an hour. We slow down again for that speed limit because I'm a good person. But more importantly, because there's a cop right on the other side of the bridge. I can see him. And so what do we all do? We slow, we see him, we slow down 45 miles an hour. We pass by him. And right as I pass by him, you see him throw on his lights 
And he whips around faster than anyone I've ever seen. And he comes up right behind me, pulls me over. I have no idea what's happening. Um, he says, you, do you know how fast you were, were going there? And I said, I'm, I'm not exactly sure. He says, you were flying. And I was like, I, I, I'm sorry. I, I saw the, the sign to slow down to 45. Um, uh, you see, the area that I thought was over, the work zone area, I thought because there were no big giant flags anymore, that was still technically the work zone, even though it didn't look like it was. And so I was technically going 77 miles an hour in a 45. Do you know what happens when you go 30 miles over the speed limit in a work zone? They have a word for it. It's called mandatory court appearance. I have to show up in court in Mound City, Illinois, even though I'm literally in the process of moving to Detroit. But the officer tells me you can have a lawyer represent you. That, that, hey, you can just have a lawyer stand in your presence for you. So I arrive in Detroit. I, I start looking for a lawyer in Mount City. Just so you know, there's not a lot of them in case you're in need. Um, and I start sharing with this lawyer. I start sharing with him my story, what happened. And he stops me right in the middle of my story. He says, can I just shoot straight with you? I said, yeah, please, please. He's, he, said, he said, Tyler, you have to understand that area is a speed trap for Mound City. They know no one is coming to town there, but everyone is passing through. And then he said this, he said, that little spot may be one of the best places of economic profit for Mound City. And then he went on, he said this, including for me as a lawyer. Now, I admired his honesty that he would share that. And I think because we were so far apart, he, would, he thought he'd never see me again. I admired his honesty, but I felt so betrayed by justice. Uh, it was like the gotcha moment. We, we, we got you, Tyler. So just pay up. And this is this aha busted moment. This is what Paul's trying to deal with. Paul says, notice the attitude. Uh, we don't restore with a spirit of self-righteousness. We don't restore with a spirit of gotcha, busted. We restore with gentleness and peace. I don't know if you've had this happen, but kids are quite sneaky. I don't know if you've noticed this. Kids are quite sneaky. They'll, they'll ask you questions about something. You're playing along. You're answering their questions. But unbeknownst to you, they are setting you up. It was a trap all along. And you don't realize it till the very last moment. Because they just wanted to see you squirm as a parent. Kids just love that stuff. They had you trapped. Our heart should not be to trap. It's not to say, aha, busted. It's a heart to become a person of love committed to the life and way of Jesus. That's what Paul says here in our passage in verse two. He says this, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Paul says, when you restore with gentleness, you are truly bearing one another's burdens and fulfilling the law of Christ. Now, this verse may strike you as a bit off-putting because the whole book of Galatians, Paul has been telling us, don't obey the law. Don't obey the law. Put your faith in Jesus. But what's he talking about here? Why does he use it here? Paul's explaining the law of Christ 
is the fulfillment of the moral law. Because, because of the finished work of Jesus, the law now for you as a follower of Jesus can be your rule, your guide for how to live. And the law, what is it pointing us to? Well, it's pointing us to that the church is called to be an alternative community following Jesus, consumed with the love of Jesus, offering a different way to live in this broken world. We're called to be a community of love. Look, look at how Paul puts it elsewhere in the book of uh, Romans. I love the way he says this. He kind of puts it all in summary form. He says this, uh, Romans 13, Oh, no one, anything except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law for the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore love is love is the fulfilling of the law. It's the fulfilling of the law. Uh, Jesus also marked out this as the purpose and fulfillment of the law was love. Uh, we read this in Matthew's gospel. This is Jesus in his interaction with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus says the Hebrew scripture, it was trying to tell us over and over in all its various forms, love God, love others. That's what he's telling us. Now friends, notice who Jesus is talking to in this passage. This is very important. He's talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Uh, Jesus is talking to the, to the religious people of his day who took the Bible very, very serious. Sadly, it's the ones who take the Bible most seriously who can be prone the most to not love well. Now, this has actually gotten tested out so many times through the years. I actually read about uh, a psychological study that was done recently on this back in the 1970s. Uh, the study was done to test students who were on one end of a campus and they needed to get to the opposite end of the campus as fast as they could because they had to give a lecture on the opposite end of the campus. They had a talk they had to give. And the researchers told them that part of the study, you, they were running late. They were behind. It was urgent. They needed to hurry. So you got to get from this end of the campus to that end of the campus. You have no time and you got to give your lecture. Go now. What the students didn't know is that the researchers had hired an actor to play a victim on the side of the road, on the route that they were taking to the other side of the campus. And this actor was coughing and suffering and trying to get their attention. Look at me, look at me, look at me. I'm in pain, I'm suffering. Trying to get their attention, but they were in a rush to get to the other side of the campus to give this lecture. Do you want to guess the percentage of people who did not stop, who did not stop to care for this suffering person? 90% did not stop. This psychological study, you can look it up, is called the Good Samaritan Study. Do you know why it is called the Good Samaritan Study? It is called this for more reasons than you are probably thinking right now. 
You see, the campus where this experiment took place was a campus called Princeton Theological Seminary. The students were seminary students training to be pastors. The lecture that they were in such a rush to get to the other side of the campus to give was a sermon on the Good Samaritan. And 90% of them didn't stop. 90% of the, quote, hurried students at Princeton Theological Seminary ignored the needs of the suffering person in their haste to get to the other side of the campus to give a sermon. As the study reports, quote, indeed, on several occasions, a seminary student going to give his talk on the parable of the Good Samaritan literally stepped over the victim as he hurried away, end quote. Now, this study exposes so much, especially about pastors. But it is easy to live consumed with our own agendas, unaware of whether we are loving God and others in the process. It's so easy to lose this attitude. We need to bear the burdens of others. Jesus gave us this mandate for our attitude for other people. He said this, a new commandment I give you that you would love one another. Friends, what's your attitude to others who need restoration? Is it to bust them? I got you. I caught you. Is it to ignore them? Or is it to love them? God has called us to love in a spirit of gentleness. So notice the attitude. Finally, notice the condition. Look at verses one and three. It's, Paul says this, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Uh, Paul tells us the condition, not of the person we are trying to restore, but the condition as the person restoring. We can sometimes think we are better than we are when we see in our passage, he reminds us, Paul reminds us, we are nothing. I don't know if you've heard the story about Muhammad Ali, the famous boxer. Um, he's on an airplane. They're about to take off and the flight attendant uh, comes to him. Muhammad Ali still unbuckled, says uh, him that he needs to buckle his seatbelt for the takeoff. And Ali's famous response was Superman don't need no seatbelt. Superman don't need no seatbelt. You may have heard of this. To which the flight attendant responded appropriately, Superman don't need no airplane. <laughs> this is what the Bible is constantly reminding you and me about when it comes to bearing one another's burden. Notice your condition. You, my friends, are not Superman. Our passage tells us, for if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. We have a tendency towards what Dallas Willard calls duplicity. There is a self-deception we don't realize is there until the moment it presents itself. 
Uh, one of the places where I remember seeing this so vividly was in the old baseball steroid scandals. Anybody remember the old steroid scandal in baseball? And, and you had um, the, 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 all these players who were coming out and they, they, of course, were denying it, though it was obvious that they had been uh, like you can see their old baseball cards and see the latest ones. And they're completely huge. Uh, they were denying it. But then there was a few who had come forward and they had confessed and they had confessed. I had taken. But they all kind of had the same line. They would say it like this. They would say, yes, I did this, but this is not who I am. This is not who I am. Maybe you've heard that in other times. People, people blow it. They do something they wouldn't normally do, but they would say, this is not who I am. It's not who I am. But Paul tells us, actually, no, that's exactly who you are. It's just, it took the right situation to expose the real person behind the fig leaves that's exactly who you are. Uh, my brother uh, shared the story with me that one time he woke up at about four in the morning to the sound of animals moving downstairs in his house. Uh, he went downstairs to see what was going on and, and he found an actual possum on his kitchen counter. And so he, he grabbed a rake and he shooed that possum out of his house and tried to go back to sleep. Uh, and then the next day they assessed the damage of what had happened. And, and he began to do all the damage and see what they did. Uh, and and he, he found that the possum had been living in the walls of his house. Uh, the possum had actually been living in the pantry. Um, they found chewed up food in the pantry where the possum had been living. Now, imagine a few days before this incident took place at 4 a.m., I, 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 I said to my brother, hey, 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 bro, how's the house? How, how are things going with your house? And he, he probably went, oh, man, things are so great. House is great. The family loves the house. It's awesome. Everything's working so well. No major issues. But that, my friends, is called deception. Why? Because there's a possum in the pantry. We think everything's okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. But if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Friends, there is a possum in the pantry. Theologian uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, has this great question that he would ask to expose duplicity uh, in the lives of others. He asked this question. He says, what happens to you? What happens to you when you are interrupted? What happens to you when you're interrupted? What, what happens when someone interrupts your agenda, interrupts your planning, the things you were going to do, interrupts uh, what you were currently working on or doing? Uh, this could be a coworker, a child, a spouse, a friend. Uh, it could be a stranger uh, driving 10 miles below the speed limit on a one lane road. Uh, it, it could be the, the person at the rapid checkout line in your grocery store. Remember, 10 items or less, but they have 20. What happens to you when you get interrupted? But Tyler, but Tyler, that's not who I am. That's not who I am. Oh, really? Watch out for the possums. 
They're in the pantry. Have you noticed your condition? This is so important because in our heart to restore in those moments, we may find an elevation in us to believe that we are Superman and we don't need no plane. I remember hearing a story one time about a husband who recently tragically had found out their wife was having an affair. And in the process of his healing, very quickly after this realization, he started seeing a therapist. And the therapist said this to him, and and I locked it away. It's just been with me for a while. The therapist said to him, be careful. Be careful. You are no more dangerous in life than when you are right. You're, you're, You're no more dangerous in life than when you are right. In our effort, to restore others, we may be no more dangerous than when we are right. Friends, you are not Superman. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But the question this morning is, if this is what it means to care for others well, how do we become the kind of people who are willing to bear one another's burdens? How do we enter the mess working towards restoration rather than retaliation? How do we do that? How do we move towards this gentleness rather than gossip? How do we do that? Where where do we get this ability? That's our second question. How do we become the kind of people who care well? Isn't this our hope? To, to, To be restored by truth and gentleness and to restore in truth and gentleness. To become an alternative community following Jesus, consumed with the love of Jesus, offering a different way to live in this broken world. Well, to learn how to care for well for the burdens of others, we need to see how we've been cared well with our burdens by Jesus. This is why Jesus came to bear our burdens. He came to restore us eternally. You can look back at the very beginning of Galatians, the very beginning, right at the very beginning. Paul says this in Galatians 1, he said, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Friends, Jesus gave himself to deliver you, to deliver you. He he gave himself to restore you. Jesus was broken so that you would be realigned into God's presence. He did not come in pride. He did not come in anger or rage. He did not come with hostility. He did not come begrudgingly to restore. He came in love. He came in love. He, he, He came in gentleness. He came in truth, knowing that we had been possessed by this evil age and we needed restoration. He, he has come to set us right with God to, he bore our burdens all the way to his death so that you could experience a different kind of life and way of living in this world. So that by the power of the spirit, we would be a different picture to the world of how we bear our burdens together well in restoration. Even Jesus, he gives us this gospel as our motivation for how we bear one another. He said this, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. How are you loving as Christ has loved you? Maybe this morning you will ask God for the power to be a loving person committed to bearing the burdens of others because of all that Christ has done for you. What, what Christ has done for me, how can I not do this for my brother or my sister? 
Uh, many of you may know the name Sir Edmund Hillary. He was part of the group that was the first to summit uh, Mount Everest. Uh, but what many may not know is part of that group to summit, uh, he, Hillary was going back, descending Everest on his way back uh, down, and he slipped and fell off the mountain and was about to die. Uh, but his guide that was with him, Tenzin Norgay, uh, held the line taunt uh, for Hillary, and he dug his axe into the ice to keep him from falling off. And Hillary was able to get back up and make his way down the mountain. And, and Tenzin later refused special credit for saving Hillary's life, though he did. Uh, and he had this great line. He says this, mountain climbers always help each other. Mountain climbers always help each other. Friends, we always help each other. We always need each other. Bear one another's burdens. As Jesus, our guide and our teacher and our friend has done for you. Let's pray. Well, gracious Father, we are so thankful that you have called us into your church family. And you, you've given us brothers and sisters to walk alongside us and to, to restore us and be committed to us. And so God, give us the power to be that kind of brother or sister. Uh, help, help us to, to follow you, Jesus, as our guide and teacher and friend, because you have borne our burdens. You have cared for us all the way to the cross. And from that place of love, may we love others well. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen.